But just to be clear, everybody else is stuck. All right. <laughs> uh, just a quick housekeeping note as the kids are gone. I want to say thank you to those of our members who voted. We had an, an election for trustees, which is a role that our Constitution requires. And just want to let you know that all three of those candidates, Doug Edmonds, Robert Conniff, and Steve Summers, uh, were approved unanimously. So I'm really grateful for you guys who were a part of that process with us. Uh, as we get started with the sermon today, I wanted to invite you to stop and to think back on your life and really try to identify some of those you know, pivotal moments where you had to have what at least we used to call back in my days in college a DTR conversation. Now, I don't know if like the young folks are still using those terminology. My son's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But back when I was in college in the 90s, <laughs> It's getting more and more painful to say with every year. Um, but we, you, know, you, you can picture the scene, right? Like two people, they start hanging out, you know, and it's, it's going well. And then they're hanging out more and like, hey, this is pretty fun. But at some point, they have to have that DTR conversation, right? DTR is define the relationship, right? You know that like, hey, this is, this is fun, but like, is this, is this going somewhere? I mean, it seems like it's good, but I mean, do you think the same thing or what's going on? Is it serious? We're on the same page. And when that happens, right, you've got to have this conversation where you clarify where things are going. Uh, for those of you I haven't had a chance to meet before, my name is Mike King, and I have the privilege as the lead pastor here at Suburban of leading a really wonderful uh, team of volunteers and staff. Um, but I remember when my wife Martha and I had this conversation. Uh, so Martha and I met, uh, we were working as counselors at a summer day camp, like a kids' day camp on the north side of D.C. And at the beginning of that summer, she was dating somebody else. And at the beginning of that summer, I had just gotten dumped uh, by a girl. So I was just in the the throes of despair. Um, But we got to know each other. And by the end of the summer, uh, you know, Martha had gotten a good look at this piece of man candy and had dumped that guy. (laughs) And I had gotten to know her. So like my heartache was gone at that point, right? So we were were just kind of going along. And, you know, early on, we started dating sort of formally kind of after summer ended. And it was like maybe six weeks into our relationship, we were just sort of talking one day, and it was like, hey, this, I mean, I like you. I mean, like, I really like you. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I could see maybe going to, like, marriage or something one day, you know? And she's like, okay, I I, I kind of feel like this is maybe where that's headed too, but let's not talk about this again for a long time, all right? (laughs) So we we didn't, right? But we, we, we had that moment, like, at least in our minds, we both confirmed, okay, we're, we're tracking in the same general direction here. So we didn't talk about it. We just kind of invested in the relationship, saw what happened, and about a year later, I ended up proposing to her. But defining the relationship, right? It's something that, that everybody has to do, whether you're talking about a dating relationship. It's something that we, we often engage in those conversations with our employer about the terms of our employment, or you think about your relationship with friends or neighbors. Just having clarity around expectations in a relationship is really important. And this morning, we're continuing on in our study of the Old Testament book of Exodus. And we're going to be looking at a really critical passage in that book today, um, where God and the people of Israel have what I would describe as a DTR conversation. They kind of figure things out. So the the book of Exodus, as we've been talking about it, is divided into three main sections. Uh, The first section of the book involves God rescuing the people of Israel. Remember, centuries before the book started, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. He says, I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation. I'm going to use them, but they're going to spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. So at the beginning of the book of Exodus, that that time has come to its close, and God hears the people of Israel crying out. 
And he shows up and he rescues them in this amazing, miraculous, powerful way. Uh, Randy talked about that a couple of weeks ago where the Red Sea parts and all that. And then that leads to the second part of the book, which is really about God establishing a relationship with the people he just rescued. So last week we started talking about that, about how God took about two months to bring them out of Egypt to the foot of Mount Sinai. And along the way, there were all sorts of roadblocks and detours and obstacles in the way. And God used those experiences to help them get to know him and to deepen their trust in him. And then next week, we're going to move into the third part of the book, which is where God plans to to prepare a place where he can physically be with his people, physically live among them. But this morning, we're going to finish up looking at that second section, which is about the relationship that he's building with the people of Israel. And at this point, it's about two months. For about two months, the people of Israel have been out of Egypt, and they have arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, which is significant because way back in chapter three of the book, God promised Moses when he was commissioning him to go and to rescue the people of Israel, he said, once I brought you, once you brought the people out of Egypt, you're going to worship me on this mountain. So Sinai was the, the first destination when they left Egypt. So we're going to jump into this today looking at chapter 19. So if you brought a, a Bible, I would encourage you, really encourage you to turn there with me so you can read along. If it would help you for any reason, there are some red Bibles in those seats around you. You can find the passage we're going to be starting with at the page number on the screen. But here's how it starts. So chapter one, or verse one of chapter 19. says, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So if you add it up, it's taken them about 50 days to travel from Egypt, have all these roadblocks, but now they're, they're here, and they, they land at, at Mount Sinai, and they actually end up spending about a year here before God has them move on again. But look at what happens when they get to the mountain. So the people end up waiting down at the base of the mountain. It says, but then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. And listen to this, as you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So again, here, God is beginning to define the relationship with the people of Israel. So way back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham. You know, you're going to have all these descendants. And basically, he says this, Abraham, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And then listen to this part. He says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And at this point, these promises are starting to come true. Abraham's descendants have become a great nation. There's a lot of people in the the nation of Israel. And God is bringing them to this land where he is going to start using them to move this mission forward so that all nations on earth can be blessed. The people of Israel are going to play a really unique and critical role in this rescue mission. And God talks a little bit about that in the language that we see in the rest of that passage we looked at. He's, he's starting to sketch out what the contours of their relationship will be. And he begins by reminding them of what he has already done for them. Right? He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And then he begins to talk about the intentional plan he has for them in the future. He says, now... If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, and we'll we'll come back to that idea of what a covenant is in a minute, says, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, and you'll be a holy nation. 
So out of all of the people on earth, God is he's kind of staking a unique claim to the people of Israel. He says, you are my possession, you're my treasure. And they have this incredibly huge role to play in this rescue plan because he says they are a nation of priests. Now think about what that means. I mean, think about what it is that a priest does. A priest, like an individual priest person, their job is to sort of bridge the gap between God and people who have sinned and who have messed things up, right? They're, they're trying to reconcile that relationship. And God is saying, just like individuals need an individual priest to do that, you, the people of Israel, you are now going to be a nation of priests. So your role as a nation is to be kind of a priest to all the other nations, right? Your role as a nation is to help bridge the gap between everybody else on earth and me, to come back into a right relationship with me, to know about my love and my forgiveness and my grace. And as part of, of being do that, as part of living out that priestly role, they're called to be holy, right? Just like individual priests had all of these laws, it was called the holiness code that they had to follow. The, the nation of Israel is supposed to do that too. And really what that means is God's just calling them to be set apart, to be different. That's what the word holy means. They are invited as a nation, as a people, to live differently than the rest of the nations around them. And the idea is that their different lives, that the fact that they're living differently, that's something that is going to draw people back to God, that's going to point people to them. So that's God's kind of opening line. He's, he's the one who starts out the, the DTR conversation. He's kind of like, here's what I want to do. And, you know, if you think about DTRs and, you know, in, in like human relationships, somebody's got to say, hey, I like you. I, I think this could be really serious. And then there's this pause because the other person has to respond, right? So that's what happens here. God sort of initiates and says, this is what I think our relationship could be. But the people of Israel have to decide, are we in, right? Do we want to enter into this relationship? So that's where the story goes next. So, so Moses, he's gotten all these words from God. Moses comes back down and he summons the elders of the people and he sets before them all the words the Lord had just commanded them to speak. And the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord had said. So then Moses brings their answer back to the Lord. Okay, so the people of Israel are in. And, and then if you keep reading, the story kind of takes a, a sort of a weird turn, at least from our perspective. So in verse turn we read, in 10, we read this. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash all their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Right? So God says, I'm going to come physically in person to be there to kind of finalize this relationship and formalize it. And, and it is important that we notice that the, the people, they got to take some steps to prepare for this. This is not a casual meeting. It's not like, oh, you know, at the last minute I decided to go meet a buddy for coffee. So you know, just kind of show up however you are. No, 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 they prepare. There's things they're supposed to do. And in the verses that follow, they list out even more instructions. There's sort of an area they can't get too close to the mountain. Uh, people who are married are not supposed to have sex for a few days. All of this is to prepare themselves to meet with God. Now, I want us to pause and think about that for just a second before we continue with the story, because I, I wonder if, if we don't miss the point of this sometimes today. Uh, one of the things that I love, I love about being in the church, and Suburban, I think, is a church that really embraces this, is that we understand that with God, we, God invites us to come to him just as we are, right? We don't have to get things figured out. We don't have to have everything cleaned up. We don't have to do it all right ahead of time. Uh, God's arms are open wide, and he invites us to come to him in his grace and be with him. And because that's true, though, I, I think we sometimes only picture God that way. And we forget the fact that he is mighty and that he's holy 
and that he's powerful and that he created the entire universe and it holds together in his power. And, and we need to respect that and keep that in mind when we prepare to meet him. And that's particularly true when, when we think about getting together for worship with God's people, like in our case, on a Sunday morning. I mean, what does our Sunday morning look like? Do we just kind of roll out of bed on Sunday? Or if we're watching online, do we show up 15 minutes late because we want to make sure that we brew the coffee so that we can stay awake when Mike is talking and talking and talking? Um, but just like... Boy, that really struck a chord with people. (laughs) A little note of that one. All right. But no, really think about what what would our experience together look like if we tried to take a note from the people of Israel and really, really prepare ourselves to come to church? Uh, That might involve making sure that we get a good night's rest on Saturday so that we come to worship feeling physically rested. It might involve using the time as we're driving to church to really pray and invite God's Spirit to to speak to us in that day, to pray for the people who are coming, to pray for the people who are visiting, that they might have a true encounter with the living God during this time. Uh, It could involve getting here early enough that you actually have some time to meet people and greet people and then maybe have a few minutes in your seat to stop and pray and and confess your sins that are going on and and really invite God to to help you listen to what he wants to say that day. And please, please, please with this, there is no guilt in this, okay? I just want you to know we would always prefer to have you show up tired, cranky, and late rather than not show up at all. And in truth is, like, sometimes there are stages of life and seasons of life where it's easier to, to really do this than others. Like, when our four kids were little, I always showed up at church early because I worked there. I was always amazed that Martha made it to church, period, right? Just with all four of our children alive and dressed. Uh, so you think about, so, right, I mean, so we, we want you here. But just, I just want to introduce that idea today. Like, what would it do for our ability to connect with God, for our relationship with each other, if we thought, okay, given the constraints I have, given whatever's going on in my stage of life, what does it look like to really prepare uh, to come and to be in the presence of the living God with his people? What, what can I do to truly prepare for that? So it's just a thought for us to keep in mind as we move forward with God. But, but back to the story, okay? So it turns out that it was a really good idea for the people of Israel to prepare themselves for this meeting because it is completely overwhelming when God shows up. The text says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood in front of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire, and the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Right, so it's just this kind of awe-inspiring scene. And it's out of that scene that God begins to speak to everybody. So look what he says at the beginning of chapter 20. He says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then in the verses that immediately follow, God gives them what we know as the Ten Commandments. Okay, the Ten Commandments easily is like one of the most famous parts of the Bible. And people who've never read the Bible before, they've heard of the Ten Commandments. And, you know, if you were a kid growing up in Sunday school, you were memorized slash bribed into memorizing them by the promise of candy that your teachers gave you. That's how it worked for me. Um, and they're still, to this day, like a well-known collection of laws and commands. And together, they, they give an overview of how God is inviting us to respond to him and each other. You know, the first four commands really have to do with how we worship and relate to God. Uh, the last six commands really have to do with how we connect with each other in loving and life-giving ways. Um, but I think it's important to remember that there's more going on here than just listing out some important laws to follow. 
And I think that we can best understand what was going on in the Ten Commandments when we understand the idea of the covenant that God is making with the people of Israel. So let's talk about covenants for a minute, because God himself used that language in Exodus 19 to, to talk about this relationship. So the, the Hebrew word there that's used for covenant, the word berit, right, it, essentially it means a legally binding agreement. It's, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think the, the best modern equivalent that we have to a covenant to help us think about what's going on here is to think about it in terms of a contract. In covenants, they were all over the place in the ancient Near East, in lots of different settings. You could use a covenant to make a personal agreement with somebody, to establish promises between families, to do business relationships, and even treaties between different nations were set up using this covenant structure. And it's important to remember that what we see doing here, that the covenant, it was just a part of the cultural world that they had. People knew how covenants worked. So God uses something that they already know and understand to help them enter into a relationship with him that's gonna teach them something about who he is. But it's really interesting when you look at it because he uses some parts of how covenants often work just as is, because they understood it. But he also took some elements of what covenants, how they usually worked, and he tweaked them. And, and he shifted them in ways that, that actually teach us something really important about who he is. So let's just kind of talk about this idea of covenants for a second. So, for example, uh, ancient covenants always began with the parties sort of being named. There was a preamble. So in Exodus 22, right, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That is phrased in a way that is very similar to how other ancient covenants opened up. Uh, another thing that ancient covenants always did, which makes sense if you think about it in terms of like a business contract, is that they carefully listed out what the duties and responsibilities were for each of the different parties. And so for the Israelites to keep this covenant, they have to obey the laws that God is giving them. That includes the general principles that we find in the Ten Commandments, and also all these laws that you find in chapters 21, 22, and 23, which are basically kind of fleshing out what the, it's more of a detailed explanation and application of those principles. In fact, when you get to Exodus 24, Moses looks back on the laws in those three chapters, 21, 22, 23, and he calls them the Book of the Covenant. So this is the thing, because God has rescued and redeemed the people of Israel, all of these laws spilled out in these chapters, that's how they're called to live. Now, it's important to notice that like, following all these laws doesn't earn them a new relationship with God, right? The laws come after the covenant. God's grace establishes it, but as a response to God's active presence in their life, this is what it looks like to live. But God's got obligations in the covenant as well. Like he listed those out even back in chapter 19. He says, I'm gonna treat you as my treasured possession. I'm gonna make you, give you this priestly role among the people. I'm gonna protect you. So he's using this ancient covenant form that they, they all knew, they understood, to, to define the relationship with them. But he doesn't just use it as is. He adapts it in some really significant ways. And, and, for, and, and those, those changes show us something about him. So for example, typically, the whole reason people would go into a covenant it's just like a business contract today, is because both sides expect to benefit in some way, right? Like, you know, if you're renting an apartment, you expect to have a place to live and the landlord expects to get some cash, right? You're both getting something out of the deal. But if you read through the text of the Old Testament, it's really clear what the people of Israel are getting out of it. They get this relationship with God and he's gonna bless them and they have this unique role in creation. But the Bible doesn't really seem to say that God gets anything out of his relationship with the people of Israel that he couldn't get on his own some other way. So instead, God doesn't enter into a covenant with them because he's getting something. The, the reason he enters into the covenant, it's really based on his character as a loving and gracious God who freely extends his blessings to other people, whether they deserve it or not. So that, that's one of the differences in this covenant. It's unique about it compared to other ancient covenants. 
And I think the other place that you really see the difference comes out in the Ten Commandments itself. Right? So later on in Exodus, we learn that the commandments are written down on two tablets. Right? And over the years, people have wondered why that is. Like, well, maybe God ran out of space on the first one. You know, there's just a lot of words, so he needed a second tablet to do it. Or maybe there's five on one and five on the other. Um, but I think the most likely answer is actually rooted in how God is kind of transforming this ancient covenant structure. Because ancient covenants always had a provision where you would make two copies that kind of summarized the, the goal of the covenant, right? Two copies that listed out the obligations of both parties. And the idea is that when the covenant was done and you guys are going back home, each party takes a copy and they take it back and they put it in their temple or, you know, someplace, someplace where they could review it and, and remind themselves of the commitments they've made. But when you read in the next chapter, right, when, when God finishes establishing this covenant with the people of Israel, they don't go their separate ways. Instead, God gives both of the tablets to Moses, and Moses takes them back to the camp. And the most likely reason for that is because of what God is planning on doing. Right? God's not leaving. Right? God is making a commitment to them. He's like, hey, Moses, I want you to take both copies back to your camp because that's where I'm coming. Like, now that we make this relationship with each other, I'm not leaving you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to come and actually dwell among you. In fact, the rest of the book of Exodus is set up with describing the, the preparations for this time when God is going to come and actually leave, uh, live among his people. So I think that's why Moses has both, both tablets. They're two copies of the same thing. But with the fact that he's carrying them both back to the camp, that they're going to be a part, of the, they're going to be kept in the tabernacle and later in the temple. I think it's a picture of God's promise to, to be with the people and not leave them. So that's, that, that's the story behind the Ten Commandments. So, but then look what happens next. It says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, uh, Why don't you talk to us and we'll listen, but don't let God talk to us anymore or we're going to die. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. But the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So after seeing the thunder and the lightning, like hearing God's voice and the mountain is trembling, the people understandably freak out, right? And they, they're like, we don't, Moses, we don't want to hear from God directly anymore, okay? How about you talk to God and just let us know what he said, and we're going to stand over here and we're going to let you do it because it's just too much for us. But Moses tries to tell him, no, 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 no. The, the fear that you feel right now, it's not supposed to make you run away from God. Instead, it's trying to encourage you to submit to him in godly living, which is why he says to them, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Right? It's really similar to an idea that, that Moses says at the end of Deuteronomy, kind of the end of the Pentateuch. He says, you know, the whole reason that God was dealing with you the way he did in the wilderness was to humble you so that it might end well with you. Right? Go well with you. The, the recognition of God's power and his might should prompt us to remember who he is and prompt us to sort of humbly come to him. It shouldn't prompt us to run away and withdraw, but that's exactly what the people of Israel do. In a sense, they, they kind of fail this test and they withdraw and they're like, Moses, you, you're the guy from here on out. Just have God talk to you. So that's what God does. So at this point of the story, things shift and, and instead of speaking to the people as a whole anymore, uh, God starts talking just to Moses. And so he gives the bulk of what he says in chapters 21 through 23 is this long list of laws. And, you know, we can think of these as a further explanation 
and application of what it looks like to take the general principles in the Ten Commandments and apply them to the life situations that the people of Israel might face. Which is why I think it's so interesting, the very first chunk of those set of laws has to do with how the people of Israel are supposed to treat slaves. Now remember, what were the people of Israel like 60 days before this? Right? They were slaves in Egypt. So God is saying, look, if the day comes when you have slaves, you need to treat them differently, not the way that you were treated. You need to treat them in ways that, that line up better and better with my ideals. So I, I look at this section, all these laws, and I love the way one scholar described it. He said, this is not an attempt at a complete listing of all the laws. The purpose of this section is it's a demonstration of how God's ideals are to be applied to real-life situations. So Moses spells all that out. And then in chapter 24, this section comes to a close where there is a a formal ceremony where God and the people of Israel sort of ratify this covenant together. And in the ancient world, uh, the way that a covenant was finalized was always with animal sacrifice, like with killing animals and then kind of doing some things with their blood. And to us, we think like, that's really gross. But that's actually even tied up in the Hebrew term. The Hebrew word for signing or finalizing a covenant literally is to cut a covenant which is a reference to the fact that they would literally cut these animals in half. And part of the reason they did that, the reason they cut all these animals in half, was it was a, it was a visual demonstration. Essentially, it was a way for both partners that were going, entering into this relationship say, may what happened to that animal happen to me if I don't hold up my end of the agreement. So there's always blood involved. It's kind of gross for us, but that's how it worked back then. So the ceremony ends this way. It says, then he, this is Moses, Moses took the book of the covenant, read it to the people, right? Here's what we're agreeing to do. And they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And then Moses then took the blood of these animals that he'd sacrificed, and he sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, so that's what it looked like when God and the people of Israel had this define the relationship conversation. And once that relationship is defined, God is now ready to to move in and to take up residence among his people. And next week we're going to look at how we do that. But, But as we close out the time together today, I want to think just a little bit about what this means for us today. Because, you know, all this stuff, the people of Israel, it's so far back, it's way back then. What does this have to do with how we live today? Well, one of the reasons I think that it's important to talk about this is that in the period right after the resurrection of Jesus, when the church was was born, early Christians looked back to this passage in Exodus 19 that talked about the unique mission, the unique role that the, the, the people of Israel had, and they say, that applies to the church now. So the early Christian leader, Peter, in one of his lines, he, he quotes, literally quotes from this passage and says this, he applies it to the people of the church, saying, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, like all those things that were, were special about Israel, those things are on you now. And why are you, why is that yours? It's that so you may declare that the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Right? The, the Christian understanding is that our mission, our, our job is to continue to play our part in God's larger rescue story of the world. Just like the people of Israel were supposed to be in this priestly role, kind of connecting God to people, that's what we're supposed to do as people now, right? We are his body. We help people move out of darkness and discover the light of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. That's that's what we're called to do now. And I think it is so important for us to remember that we cannot do this on our own, right? Today, we talked about this, this story where God gives the people of Israel the law. 
they make it like three minutes before they start breaking the law, right? The rest of the book of Exodus, really the rest of the Old Testament as a whole, just shows that they're completely incapable of, of keeping their side of the covenant on their own. So God promises that one day he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And he says one day, this is in a later prophet he's talking, he says he will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Right? The picture here is of a people who are filled with God's Holy Spirit. Uh, so that they actually, they, they obey his commandments in the same way that we obey the law of gravity, right? It just happens naturally because his spirit is in us, his grace is on us, and we become transformed, and we just live that way out of the overflowing love that he's put in our hearts. And for those of us who are following Jesus today, like, that's something we got to remember. God's empowering presence, the Holy Spirit, lives in each of us. And the important thing, I think, to remember here is that God's vision for his people hasn't changed, Like what he wanted for the people of Israel back then, in some ways what he wants for us now. He wants people whose hearts are fully devoted to him. He he longs for us to know his desires and his plan and his will, right, which are summarized in those principles in the law. And he wants us to live those out. So we we have a part to play in that, right? That's, That's why we need to know what his will is. That's why we need to pray. We need to connect with him. We need to read his word so that we know his heart and his character and his word. And so that becomes truly native. It just becomes our native programming language of our heart. So here's what I want to do today to close. Um, We're actually going to finish up today with communion. Because when you think about what communion is, uh, our understanding of communion is that when we take the bread and the cup, we have the opportunity to have a real encounter with the power of the risen Christ. Right? That in that bread and cup, we connect with him in ways that sustain us and that give us the strength that we need to follow him. So think about, I mean, just spend a minute, think about what, what, what would it look like for God to give us a picture of what our next right step as individuals and as a church looks like with all that we've talked about. I mean, many of us, we, we're doing our level best to allow his power to help us live as a holy people and in our lives and words to point to him. Well, how can we, even as we pray and take communion today, how can we invite him to keep empowering us in that work and to encourage us to not give up if it, if it just doesn't seem to be producing much in the way of results? Uh, for others of us, we may need to top, stop and, and take this moment and really admit our sins and confess our faults and our failures to God and, and invite him uh, to forgive us, maybe for the first time or for the hundred thousandth time. Um, But so let's do this. As as we pray, just know that wherever you are today, God loves you. God sees you as his treasured possession. God has has a plan for you. He wants to use you to help people move from darkness to light, to carry his message of love and grace and hope to the watching world around you. So we're just going to pray that in this time of communion, God would meet with us and would help us do that. So I'm going to pray in just a second. The folks who are going to help administer communion, if you want to hop up and start getting ready for that, I'll pray, and then as I pray, the musicians are going to come out, and then they're just going to play some instrumental music for a little while. And during that time, we'll be passing the communion elements, and you are free to take communion just at whatever time you want in there. You're free to let the trays pass by if you don't want to take communion for any reason. Um, But after a little bit of time of silence, when it looks like everybody is done, uh, we'll close out by singing a final song together. But I want to invite you to pray with me as we prepare for this. God, we are really grateful uh, for your word and for the way that that this, I don't know, these stories, Lord, that that three, four thousand years old, like they they still speak to our reality today and to our world today. Um, it, It is encouraging and humbling 
to realize that you want to use us, that you invite us to partner with you in this mission of sharing about your love and grace with others. Um, God, we don't do it very well most of the time, and we can't do it at all without your help. So in the moments that follow, I just pray that you would do what only you could do, that you would reach out and speak to every human heart and mind that's here. Help them know that they're loved. Help them know that you're here, and help them know what it looks like to receive your strength and to take whatever the next right step is that you're calling them to do. And God, I realize that, you know, two days from now, people will not remember most of what I have talked about, but they will remember an encounter with you because those are the things that change us. So we just pray, Lord, that you would come and you would meet us. Amen.